What you know about rolling down in the deep When your brain goes numb You can call that mental freeze When these people talk too much Put that shit in slow motion Yeah, I feel like an astronaut in the ocean Ay, What you know about rolling down in the deep When your brain goes numb You can call that mental freeze When these people talk too much Put that shit in slow motion Yeah, I feel like an astronaut in the ocean Okay, here we are First ever Hard Cuddles show. Welcome, Simi Liotta. G'day. Danny Cassetti. Howdy. I'm James Harding and our special guest, Dion Yost. G'day, fellas. Awesome. So I'll get the housekeeping out of the way first. I'd like to thank the traditional custodians of the land, uh, the Indigenous people, um, and also thank our personal um, partners and sponsors down at Beast Gym, Chelsea Heights. Shout out to Jake the Trout Mitchell, and John Bowie. So let's get started. Um, every now and again, you meet or you hear about someone and you think, oh, I have to meet this person. Um, I was told about Dion's story through a woman we work with, lovely Sarah. And um, when I heard he'd done 20 years prison and managed to qualify himself as in a Bachelor in Criminal Justice, uh, Meditation and Yoga... I just had to. I had to meet. I had to meet the guy because working in this prison environment so much, Simi and Dano, um, success stories like that are very few and far between. Is that fair? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we met him. We met the. We met the man, the legend, and um, down at Geelong, and um, yeah, the. The hype was matched by a man with beautiful energy and a, and a beautiful soul, and I just thought this story needs to be told. So, um, for our first podcast, we've asked Dion to come on the show. So, welcome, mate. Um, Thank you for having me. Yeah, um, it's a real pleasure. It really is awesome, Dion. So let's start. Let's start right at the beginning with your childhood, mate. Like, tell me, what was it like? Uh for the first couple of years, I do have fond memories. I had, a, I had a good, strong father. He was an electrician. My mother, for the best part, I don't really remember her much when I was young. Um, but once my father left the picture when I was about six years of age, uh, I just remember a whole bunch of trauma. Um, my mum my was ruled by alcohol and... Um, the partners that she selected were very, very violent towards her. And I guess in order to survive, she learned how to become violent as well. Um, and the offshoot was that was was that when my brother or I would, um, like, I don't know, it didn't matter how big or how small it was, when we got into trouble, um, that violence would be inflicted upon us. So from an early age, I... I, I I just remember I lived in fear. That was, that was the, the emotion that drove me the most. Um, I didn't know what was coming next. I didn't even know if my mother would be home when I got home. Um, I got myself to school. If I didn't make my own lunch, I never took lunch. <laughs> I never had no lunch. Um, and, and so I was always on the back foot. And at the same time, because of my mum and, 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 and the blokes that she chose in her life, we moved around a hell of a lot. 
it was almost like um, every time uh, a domestic violence episode kicked off, like the house would get smashed up, the neighbours would, uh, their attention would be drawn, the police might be called, my mum might go to hospital. More often than not, her partner went to hospital because <laughs> she's tough, mate. She is seriously tough. And um, uh, so we would move. So from memory, I don't know how many like kindergartens and primary schools and high schools I went to, but it's more than 10. Um, and that was across Tasmania, Victoria and New South Wales. Yep. There was some good stuff in there. There was a couple of moments where I do remember like this is just the best life ever, living up on the coast uh, at Southwest Rocks in New South Wales. Um, our house was on the beach and some of the kids that I knew there and stuff like that, we just had amazing times as children, but the violence was always there, so we never stayed there for long. And because I moved around a lot, I was always the kid that um, came into the school halfway through the year or two weeks after the term began, or and I would be wearing the uniform from the previous school. And my mum made me wear these school shoes, which were absolutely terrible. <laughs> I know the ones, yeah. You know the yeah, ones? Yeah, yeah, Those hard black. Oh, yeah. So I was just a target for bullies. <laughs> and I guess because I was so full of fear and I was a target, I even became a bully myself sometimes, James. I, 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 I don't like that about myself, but it's true. Um, um and I did it to try and fit in. I did it to try and get some cred, to try and to show people that I wasn't weak, that I wasn't a target, that, you know, I wasn't open for, you know, I had enough stuff going on at home, let alone copping it at school. Mm. So um, eventually I reached a stage in my life where I felt at the time that it was safer for me to live on the streets. Um, wow. Oh, wow. It was, I was getting pulled out of classes, teachers were asking me to, you know, take off my top or just lower my shorts or whatever it may be, and I was just covered in these horrific bruises, um, there'd be cuts and welts on my back and my, uh, and my legs, and um, it just, and that would be reason to move yet to another school, you know, because as soon as my mum got, you know, it was like, no, nah, we're not copping this, let's go, so... Um, I felt safer that to leave home and what kept happening was the police would bring me back and I'd beg them not to. I'd go, no, nah, no, nah, just leave me where I am. I'm right, I'm right, I got this. So How old were you, Dion, you reckon you started living on the streets? I think I remember the first time I took off from home, it was about grade four or grade five. Wow. And I lived at the racetrack in Glen Orkey down in Tasmania in one of those boxes where they sit up there with the binoculars and, and watch the horses go by. Mm. Yeah, so I lived in there during the during the weekdays and I would just take off at the weekend because I knew the races would be on. But the police found me, brought me home yet again. And Can I just ask a quick, quick question? When you're out on the streets, what, what were some of the positive, what did you learn out there? Uh, I learned how to steal food without yeah. getting caught. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I would nick clothes off people's clotheslines, so I had clean clothes. You know. What do they call that? A lemon dropper or something? Uh, snow dropping. Snow dropping. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. Come in like a piece of snow and take off the <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Uh, 
the streets aren't a safe space mm. and I was actually wrong in my thinking but at the time I felt that I was right so I persisted with it. Um, in the end, uh, I actually stole a car from school and um, I stole some money and I was able to get myself on an aeroplane and get to Victoria from Tasmania. How old do you? I think I may have been about maybe 14 or something <laughs> by that time. 14? Uh, yeah. Wow. Stole a car, stole some money, jumped yeah. on a plane. Drove to the other side of Tasmania from Hobart, got on a plane in Launceston and flew to Melbourne. Um, At least you didn't steal the plane. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how they let me buy the ticket. Seriously, I yeah. just walked in there as a kid, you know, and just bought this ticket, but they did. And, um, yeah, I got into the, I, I got off the plane at Tullamarine, got down into Melbourne and just started living on the streets, like in and around Spencer Street there. Yeah. There was a bridge yeah. and you could actually get in underneath it where the old casino was. And uh, I think it's a like a big police station now, but you can actually get in underneath That's this right. bridge, and, and you could sleep under there with relatively safe, you know, relatively safely. Um, but I came to the attention of the police, and, and I don't remember exactly when, but during this period, um, I was made a ward of the state. Um, I had some court case or something in Tasmania, and they made me a ward of the state. So when I was intercepted by the police, um, they realised that I had no fixed address. So my first period of incarceration, which lasted for about 12 months, was because I was homeless. So I hadn't actually committed a crime, I just didn't have anywhere to live. Wow. And, and I guess that's where um, the fear started to turn into hate towards the system. Yeah. Um, mm. and, and I was really uncontrollable. Um, there was a lot of times where I was locked down, um, I was misbehaving, um, I wouldn't follow instructions from the officers there. And they're not like prison officers, they're just dudes in a uniform who are trying to help some kids out, but I didn't make their life easy at all. And the conditions were quite barbaric back in those days. There were no TVs and stuff like that. You were just where was that, Don Bosco or Tirana? Tirana, or what, was it? Yeah, yeah, the old Tirana. Uh, intake and, and, and Quamby and, and a yep. couple of other... And then, um, so... Did you in... What was your time like, though, outside of the screw, the screws? Did you... I mean, did you... Was it better than the street? It was better than the street. Yeah. I've got to admit, there was there was one officer in particular, and you guys might know this name, uh, Paul Fennick. He was a, an ex-Australian uh, um, champion. As a Paul Fennick, Paul, Paul Boxer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Oh, I think I'm getting his last name wrong. Yep. But he was an Australian champion. Oh, Famitron? Uh, Famitron? Nah, 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 nah. Oh, Fennec, yeah. It is Fennec, Paul Fennec. And um, we even had a laugh one day where we rang up Jeff Fennec, right? <laughs> and Paul was like, I want a shot at the title. And Jeff's like, you're not getting it, bro. <laughs> and we were all in the background going, wow, yeah. here's this guy challenging Jeff Fennec to a fight. And he's like, nah. <laughs> yeah. So we had some really good mentors around us at the time. Yep. Uh, there was an Asian guy there that began teaching me uh, like the basic elements of martial arts Fantastic. and how to defend myself, but not for the purpose of violence, for the purpose of me trying to get some mindfulness. I just wasn't open to it at the time. I couldn't see it. I was too ignorant. Um, but then I got released from there and I actually went overseas 
Um, my dad learned that I was in custody and he was overseas at the time living in South Africa. So he actually paid for me to get put on a plane and go to South Africa for three months. And the hope was that I would live with him and stay with him over there and, and I would create a new life under, under, under him. But you got this kid who's just been released after 12 months into a family that's got absolutely no experience whatsoever with a, you know, a young teenage fuck it for, 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 I can't think of another word but I was just chaos so his partner like quickly realised nah we're not having this kid in our house we've got our own children he's going to upset the whole apple cart we've got to send him back to Australia jeez so wow. that's brutal that was a tough one because I, I, I kind of saw a window that maybe my life would turn around and I really do love my dad I never yep. really got to spend that much time with him, but at the end of the day, he's my dad, and even my mum. I still love her, despite the stuff that she put me through. I just can't be around them, yep. because I get reminded of those traumas, yep. and I, I, I don't have the the skills yet to deal with that stuff, yep. um, even at my age. But um, so I came back to Australia, and the the plane, um, the ticket was only paid to Perth. So I was sitting on the plane, waiting to go to Melbourne, thinking I'm all cool and that. And this hostess walks up and goes, are you Dion? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She goes, look, sorry to tell you this, but you've got to get off the plane. We're waiting for you to get off the plane. I was like, nah, I'm going back to Melbourne. Oh, my mum and that's waiting for me, my nana and that. No, sorry, kid, you're out of here. I was like, really? So here I am living wow. on the streets in Perth. Um... All I had was a suitcase. First night I was there, I was outside the stadium uh, in, in Perth in the city there. There was like some entertainment centre or something. Akadaka was playing. So I'm sitting on my suitcase out the front. I can just hear it. And I'm thinking, how good is this? And then uh, I tried to find myself some sort of accommodation. My dad gave me 100 bucks before I left South Africa. And um, <coughs> so I'm, I found this YMCA. But uh, it, it quickly went. Um, so the man there who befriended me uh, a couple of days later actually tried to rape me. So wow, I wow. just took off. I ran as fast as I could. How old are you now? I think 16. Yeah, maybe 15, yeah. Six, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, he tricked me into thinking that we were going to the beach. Um, gave me this big spliff to smoke and a couple of... Um, uh, emu export beers or something from memory the beers from over there yeah and here i am thinking this is great you know we're going to the beach and i'm falling asleep because this stuff was so strong and then i wind up at this house and there he is with this other asian dude and and they tried to grab me and stuff and, and fuck, i just punched on like there was no tomorrow and got myself out yeah yeah um and i ran down the street and this dude just picks me up and he goes you all right and uh i go these fuckheads just tried to rape me. He goes, what? And he wanted to go back there and punch the shit out. <laughs> I don't want to go back there, mate. Just like, get me out of here. Yeah. So he, he took me to this place called the Jesus People. It was a hostel in uh, in Perth. And, and they just go, yeah, you can stay here if you want. And, and they gave me a bed, gave me a job in the kitchen. Uh, and then I moved down to Kalgoorlie thinking that I'd get work. But I was too young. Oh, you got to be 18 to work in the mines. And I didn't even know that. But we gave it a crack. And then we hitchhiked across to Victoria. And um, I'm in the city one day and I'm coming down the escalator. I'm going up the escalator and there's my mum. 
I didn't even know where she lived in, in, in Victoria, but there's my mum going down the other side of the escalator. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, hey. Hey, mum. She was like, <laughs> 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 like oh. and uh, yeah, so I went back down the escalator. It wow. turned out she actually worked in a little restaurant uh, uh, down uh, opposite the mall in Burke Street there. Wow. And um, yeah, so we talked for a little bit and, and I said that I was living in Fitzroy. I had this... Uh, I was living with the Salvos at the time. I had this flat, and, and she was like, yeah, yeah, okay. And then uh, my uncle found out that I was living there. So this flat, this is this is in Holden Street, Northcote, um, um, and it was hardcore. Like you got all the all the different European gangs in, in this set of flats. You got a couple of teenagers living in a flat with a front door that doesn't even close. I would come home and there would just be six men sitting in, in the lounge room watching the TV. <laughs> I'm like, who are you guys? They're like, shut the fuck up, kid, and go to your room. I'm like, all right. <laughs> wow. I did wow. try to take them on one day. Yeah, I just got kicked to the ground, so I never did that again. Um, and then my uncle rolls up and he goes, hey, if uh, if you want to get out of here, I'll give you a job. And, and as a carpenter, as a TA, trades assistant, and but you got to live with your mum. I was like, yeah, all right. I didn't have any other options, mate. I seriously like, I just wanted out. Yeah. Um. So uh, I moved back in with my mum, and then about a week or so later, my uncle comes to me at, at work, and he goes, "Look, look, mm-hmm. D, I, I can't pick you up for work anymore. Um, you're going to have to get yourself a bike and get yourself to my place." I'm like, "Yeah, sure, no worries." And then he goes, I actually know where there's a whole bunch of mountain bikes. And uh, <laughs> if you go in there and steal them all, um, you can pick whichever bike in the store that you want. I'm like, oh. So if I steal all those oh bikes boy. for you, I'm allowed to steal one for myself. <laughs> if you steal one, you get to choose which one. Thanks. Sounds, sounds legit. What a deal. Yeah. yeah. How could I pass that? Larry Emdo, Yeah. <laughs> He gave, you, he gave you a job, all right. <laughs> he did. Um, should we throw to a song? Absolutely. We'll just take that opportunity quickly to play one of the um, one of your favourite Australian songs, mate. Yep, yep. And, uh, yeah, we'll come back in one second. No worries. Oi, 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 oi. IGA, it's shopping nights. IGA, where the price is right. Seaford North IGA, for your groceries and liquor. IGA Express, there's nothing quicker. Hi, my name's Paul Kennedy and I'm a sport reporter for the ABC and when I'm not listening to the ABC, I listen to Radio Karam. Tune in and enjoy. Okay, we're back. Um, so you'd been offered um, um, a, a deal by, uh, by your uncle yeah. to tax some bikes. So yeah. what happened after that? So that pretty much set... Um, a series of events in place where two years later, two and a half years later, I, I found myself before the courts being intercepted by the police. Um, 
And at that time, we were just in possession of so much stuff. It was ridiculous. You and your uncle? Yeah. Yep. And, and, and there was a storage shed. Um, there, there was this house on Heidelberg Road. I was living in a in an eighteen foot brand new Jayco caravan in the backyard that I'd nicked. We were we were driving Range Rovers and F one hundreds that had all been transported to Tasmania, re identified, brought back to Victoria legitimately, you know, with the appearance of legitimacy. Yep. Um, and, and we were still working, and but whenever it rained, my uncle would still kind of on, let's go and case some shops. And the deal was still in place, but when we got intercepted, um, uh, I got bail. My, my uncle had to go into Pentridge for a couple of days, and we got him bail. And then um, two weeks later, I get brought back in to Heidelberg Cop Shop, and there's a whole host of other charges that they've um, they've been following my uncle, and they've found because he's he's still active. He didn't stop for one second. Yep. I put the brakes on. I was like, nah, nah, this is too much for me. But there he is, back at it. You know, he got caught trying to lift another F100 out of a cart yard and took it back to a storage shed that had little bits and pieces of every job that we'd ever done. Oh, he's a hoarder, this guy. I didn't even know it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I get slinged with, like, I, with all these extra charges and, and, and I had nothing. I couldn't say a thing. I was just like, yeah. Okay, and, and I just wore it. So I actually got put in in custody for that, and I was refused bail. So, but I did have some money put away. I had about four grand that I'd been saving, and I had another maybe four and a half grand that I'd earned through my work and and and, and some of the payments that I'd received from stealing stuff. But my uncle was in possession of all that money, so he paid my bail, got me out. But then after a couple of months, um, I got back into trouble for something or whatever. I was in the cells. And then I was before the court, down in the county court, and I didn't even know why I was there. But then, then I saw my uncle in the dock, and he stands up and he goes, yeah, look, Dion's a bit of a flight risk. Um, I'd like to withdraw my uh, bail from him. I, I don't trust him enough. Your to, uncle? Yeah. So. Wow. wow. He took the four and a half grand that I'd saved uh, and he took the four grand <laughs> that I'd put up for me bail and he just Jeez. kept it and I went to prison. So Which prison? I went straight into Pentridge, into D Division. And, College uh, of Knowledge. Yeah, straight into that remand uh, section. And um, there's a little bit of a crazy story. I'll make it quick. But yeah. So I'm, I'm in the cells, Hodelberg cells, with this guy named Tony and he's a little bit older than me. Mm. He goes, D, you know... It's a fucking jungle in there. You've got to learn how to fight. And I'm like, okay. So we would put socks on our hands every day. <laughs> and I would shape up to this guy and he would just punch the shit out of me. Right? And he kept doing it until I stopped turning my head away from him. And when I stopped turning my head and kept my head in the fight and started throwing him back, he's like, yeah, now you're starting to learn. Now you got it. Now you can stick up for yourself. So I get into to get into the yards first day there, and I'm pumped. <laughs> <laughs> the first guy that even looks at me, I'm like, wreck him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? And uh, I'm looking around, and I'm like, where's this Tony guy? 
He wasn't there. He went to protection. He shit himself. <laughs> and I'm standing around. There's all these big names, you know, like from, from, from the early 90s there. There was a lot of big names in prison. Yep. But um, I don't know. Through the, I just don't know why, but one of them walked up to me and go, hey, kid, you're with me now. You stay with me. Stay out of trouble and yep. we'll look after you. Yep. I was like, yeah, all right. And his name was Wally Vrenick. And he is an absolute animal, but at the same time, one of the kindest, hardest men I've ever met. Yep. And he just schooled me right from the start. And I got to meet some really big names through him. Uh, Kevin Parker, Ollie Dietrich. Uh, his now, his now, he changed his name to Hugo Rich. He, he's one of the most prominent arm robbers ever to walk Victorian, uh, you know. Um, Claude Krupe, there was Mick Martino, there was all these massive names. There was uh, Peter Allen and Trevor Penningo and all that were there. Um, Ray Whittaker, he's like one of the biggest enforcers for the Hells Angels. All these guys are in this yard and I'm just, I'm not saying one word wrong. I'm not pushing in in, in, the, in any lines. I'm just going to be possum. I'm going to play it cool. I'm going to stick to Wally and I'm just going to like... Just bite your tongue, D. Don't say nothing stupid. And then uh, I learned that lesson really, really quickly because there was this guy there, uh, Sid, and he was from quite a notorious family, the Fosters. And he had a bit of nouse about him. He might have been a little bit older than me because I was 18 at the time. And um, he thought it would be a good idea to push in line, in, in the laundry line to the washing machine. So he just moved his back up a couple of notches and a couple of notches more. You don't push in in Australia, let alone Pentridge. Nah, nah. So here I was sitting on the bench in Two Yard and uh, I see Sid walking up from the toilets because the toilets were right at the very end of the yard. Mm. It's the scariest place to go to the toilet in my life. It's like you're in there for 16 seconds and not one second more. You're out. That's where it all happens. So... I see this guy, Sid, he's walking up the yard like a zombie. You know how like zombies walk where they're really stiff and their arms don't really move and their legs? And all he can see is he's focused on the gate. And when you get to the gate, it's like, hey, boss, gate, gate, gate. And then you show him your ticket and he'll let you through, you know. And then I noticed that Sid has got a screwdriver. I can see the handle of the screwdriver going through one side of his neck like a bolt from Frankenstein. Oh, wow. And there's the other end of the screwdriver coming out where the other bolt should be, like half a foot out the side of his neck. Oh, boy. That's because he pushed in. So I just knew. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so you don't, and still now to this day, you don't push in? I never push in. <laughs> no, no, me either. No. I'll Probably I'll... never do it either. That's a good, that's a, that is wild. <laughs> yeah. That is wild. I don't want that Frankenstein look. <laughs> It's not a good look, mate. No, it really yeah. isn't. And the walk, it's very unattractive. No, it's <laughs> next, time someone, next time someone pushes in, front, in line in front of you, just say, listen, mate, I've got to tell you a story. <laughs> <laughs> you make a choice. You can either stay where yeah. you are or get the back to the line. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so. Phillips, Phillips head? No. <laughs> Some of the things that I saw uh, in those yards, it's just crazy. Extraordinary. I, I saw swords made out of number plates. You know, they were just, you know, stamped together and started. Crazy stuff. It was a horrendous. Yeah, they're very creative in there, aren't they? I've, I've, I remember we, we walked up to... Hopkins. Hopkins, yeah. And 
they showed us um, all the gadgets that they made. That's right. The, the prison guards. Mm. They have like a box yeah. for induction oh. and they wheeled yeah. them out. All the ingenious paraphernalia, drug paraphernalia, weapons, like tattoo guns. It was just... Yeah, yeah homemade. Love a good homemade tattoo gun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So resourceful, you know? Oh, yeah. The technology that goes into that, you know, and you can just push play on the stereo and you're on. <laughs> and you... And you <laughs> You know what's funny? One of the guys at the gate, the one of the screws, said to me, "The level of intelligence inside prison," he said, "is it's just if they put their minds to something great, they'd solve world famine." And he said they tend to use it for yeah shitty purposes. But he said they are actually super intelligent, and very creative. But anyway, yeah. So back to um, yeah. So you're in Pentridge. Yeah. Travelled around a fair bit because, um, again, I was still, you know, very uncontrollable. I was undisciplined. I didn't want to listen. Um, how long did you do the, for your first whack? Uh, pretty much two and a half years. For It was just a whole series of stuff and it was all brought together and the judge just went, uh, two and a half years, it all worked Any out. Any dramas in there? Um, yeah, kicked on a couple of times. Um because uh, so Matthew Johnson, uh, you know the the guy who killed Carl Williams. Yeah. He 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 was in the same position as me, and we ended up becoming friends to 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 just survive, I guess. We moved out to um, Bendigo um, Prison, and um, we were in a, a three outer at the time, so a three bed cell. Call them outers, three outers, two outers, four outers, and. Um, yeah, so we lived together there for some six months, something like that, and we did become quite close. Um, all things aside from Matthew Johnson, he, he can be a gentleman. Yeah. He's just a guy that's really mixed up. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, sure, look, um, there were times where some of the older guys would put a bit of pressure on us because they liked what we had or whatever it would be, and me and Matty had, like, we, we, we would pick straws on who was going to do what. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah, and, and, and like because after all, at the end of the day, like you guys will know this, you've got to have a little bit of form. You've got to be be willing to to put yourself out there and risk it all. Otherwise, people just see you as as weak, and they just take whatever they want. Mm-hmm. So even as kids, yeah, we had to, to to somehow manifest that form and just do what's what's got to be done. Yeah. But then, yeah, yeah, got released. Um, I went back to Tassie to live with me nana. And um, that was a really good period of my life. It was, it was about six months where um, I met a couple of guys down there from school and they introduced me to a guy named Peter Lord who was a boxing trainer and promoter and he took me under his wing and had a couple of amateur fights for the light heavyweight championship at Tasmania. Wasn't successful. <laughs> yeah. I would have loved to have known what I know now back then. Yeah. Would have, I think I would have done a lot better. But um, they were good fights. They were tough fights, and, and I learned a lot. Um, and, and credit to the guys who beat me. That like they just had the best. They had the better, uh, better uh, the better helmet. I heard. Yeah, better helmet. Yeah. <laughs> Tell the story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of, one of the fights I was wearing this uh, new design, newly designed Olympic helmet, um, but it was too loose. So you know the judge kept stopping the fight because this this helmet would spin around on my head, and I couldn't even see what I was hitting. I just knew I was getting hit, so I just kept moving forward. And uh, yeah, it was just such a messy fight. But somehow it was a split decision. He had two judges, and I had one. Mm. And um, yeah, that was a great fight. Philip, his name was Philip Woodridge. Great guy. 
And then, uh, yeah, so after that, I moved up into the Territory. What made you go up there? So two reasons. Uh, my brother got me a job on a cattle station. He was already up there. And the other one was... Um, I thought if I could run away from my problems, they might disappear. They'll start. They'll stop at the border. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this COVID thing, yeah. not getting through. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, we might play, go to one more song before we start chatting about the territory. Yeah. Um, yeah. Come, Come on, Freddy's Kitchen in Station Street for a coffee. And something nice to eat. Yeah, the yeah, pizzas are great. In fact, all the food rates down at Freddy's. Caram Station Street. Come on, come on, come on, down to Freddy's now. Come on, come on, come on, down to Freddy's now. It's a pizza. It's a mystic pizza. Josie from Space Folk, and when I want to stay groovy, I listen to Radio Karam. All right, back with Dion Yost and the Hard Cuddles Gang. Um, so, D, you became a country boy. Yeah. Up north. Started uh, buying some Lee Kernigan cassettes and whatnot and right. got a cowboy hat and, a, oh. you know, some em- R.M. William boots and whatnot. Embraced what, it. Embraced it. Yeah. Um, and, and I've got to admit, fellas, honestly, uh, the family that I worked with, um, the people that were on the station, um, despite everyone's struggles, it, w- it was a dry station, so there was no alcohol. Um Except at the at the main station where you know Malcolm and his wife they drink like fish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that was their thing. But as 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 ringers, as the cowboys on that, we weren't allowed to do that, and that kept me really safe, and it gave me a chance just to take off that top level of adrenaline every single day. Oh, they, we, we would work from sun up to sundown. Um, we could be on horseback, we could be on motorbikes. There was horse wow. trucks, wow. road trains, ten thousand head of cattle, two point one million acres. Wow! And it's just the life. I cannot say one negative thing about it. I wish I never left. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. That, uh, so did you have to like lasso some? I tried once. Yeah. I did. I because what we did, we turned off all the water. Uh, on the property and um, we opened the gates at number five and we left the water on in the, in the yards so all the wild horses from like you know 30 40 k around sniffed out the water and came down into the yards and then we were sitting up on the turkey's nest just waiting 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 and when a whole bunch of them were in the yard we just ran down and closed the gates and we caught ourselves 30 horses so wow dickhead me thought i'm going to try and lasso one of these colts and i'm going to train it up and that's going to be my horse so that ended up happening all right i named that horse uh, costa costa zoo yep and uh, <laughs> <laughs> great horse i'll tell you 
had an attitude too, yeah. <laughs> Did not want to be told what to do. Like you do. <laughs> <laughs> Ate corned beef sandwiches. He was oh, hilarious. Really? Yeah. What type of horse? Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, but the first time I tried to own him, I lassoed him and... and I didn't realise you're supposed to wear gloves when you throw one of those lassoes. So he ripped this 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 uh, waxed uh, rope out of my hands, and dickhead me tried to hold onto it. So for two weeks, I'm walking around with these third degree burns on my hands from trying to hold onto this rope. While well, I got this young, you know, wild colt jumping up and down in the air, ripping it out of me bloody hands. Amazing. <laughs> but I did catch him, mate. I did catch him. Uh, bagged him down and all that. Um, got him in the, uh, the, I think they were called hobbles. Um, and eventually, I got on his back, rode him, and then and he, yeah, he became my horse for a couple of years. That's how, incredible. How, how long did it take you to break him in? Then? It, it was. It took about two weeks. Two weeks yeah. yeah, for the first three days, it was just me being in the yard with him, mm. um, and then getting closer and closer and closer. That's and then incredible. Wow. learning to like just to get him to trot around the yard gallop whatever he wanted to do and then like coming in around him and changing him direction and then eventually getting a bridle on him um and then getting my hands and rubbing them all over his body like inside his legs on his feet up around his neck his ears learning where he liked to be scratched and all that and then wow. eventually so- getting a saddle on him and then yeah that's the next level that's when you actually got to get on his back and wow. uh they pig root like there's no tomorrow. They're only little, they're, but they're wild. And when you get on, you know, you're just shooting up in the air. <laughs> <laughs> and every, everyone's on the fences around the yard. Everyone's shit, don't let go, don't let go. <laughs> and you're, you know, you're trying to hold on to the saddle. You've got an arm up in the air oh. and you've got your hat going. And you're, yeah, and you're trying to ride time couple of goes and yeah eventually i got him to settle down and then the next day we'd repeat it repeat it repeat it and eventually uh we took him out for a ride and mouthed him got him to turn and stuff and then you know after a couple of months we'd be sitting behind a mob of maybe five to ten thousand cattle and and there's me and costa just yeah working the mob together it was wow. really cool wow. real connection yeah great horse <coughs> beautiful uh sadly um the station owner, uh, Malcolm Holt, he went up into Darwin and um, he was reversing out of uh, a car park and he got T-boned by another car. So he lost his life that day and his wife and kids were unable to hold on to the station. So it all fell down. It all fell down, guys. Um, and... Just to move on quickly from that, because like he was a great guy. He, re- he, he this yeah. guy was an absolute legend. He knew that I was really, re- really mixed up, and he just knew that if if he gave me a job, he knew I'd been in prison. He'd never even met anyone that'd been in prison before. Yep. And, and, and so he allowed me to go up there, work on his station, be trusted around all this machinery and all this kind of stuff. And he just goes, "Do you just do your thing, sort yourself out. You'll be all right, kid." And really? Wow. He was just a great man, a really great man. And it's sad that he lost his life. That would have hit you hard when that happened? Yeah. And then I moved up into Darwin and um, I thought that, you know, I'll get a job in high-rise construction. So I started tying steel. 
um, concrete reinforcing. Mm. And um, the crew I got on with, um, every single one of them, including the boss, was a chronic alcoholic. So it was actually part of their working conditions that at each break they were allowed to have two light beers each. And that was part of the, you know, if I'm going to work the culture. for culture. Yeah. yeah. And, and this, this, this wasn't unpopular up in Darwin at the time. This is just, it's the Wild West up there. And I quickly fell into that behaviour. Um, the drinking just became a way for me to deal with my trauma and um, the work was stop-start. Sometimes I'd get four weeks' work without a day off and then I wouldn't get any work for two weeks. Yep. And I quickly really spiralled into a, a, a depression that I didn't have the courage to talk to anyone about. There was no one really in my life at that stage where I could even contemplate that decision. Yep. Um, and, and, and the more I drank, the, war, the, the worse it got. And I couldn't see it. I knew what I was doing was wrong, but I didn't have the ability to stop. I was just trying to bottle this shit down, keep a lid on it. And I thought if I just got drunk each night and went to sleep, then I'd be able to work the next day and nothing else mattered. But after a period of time, um, what I, like, I, I became suicidal. Um, and for the life of me, that wasn't the first time I'd become suicidal. I think the first time I tried to commit suicide um, was when I was living with the Salvos. When I come off the street, about 13, 14, they actually took me to St Vinnie's Hospital <laughs> and stitched me up. Um, and the nurse didn't even ask what I'd done wrong. She was just like, oh, you put your hand through a window? And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. She's like, oh, yeah, that's all right. We'll put some stitches in you and send you home. So, and that was just, that was just yep. an understanding at the time, you know. So, um, this wasn't my first rodeo, I was gonna, but this time I was absolutely determined to end my life. I didn't feel that I wanted to be on the planet anymore. Um, but having said that, deep down inside me, there was a part of me that didn't want to die. Yeah. Um, deep down, I wish I could have just had the courage to talk mm -hmm. to someone and, and my life might have turned out a lot differently. Yeah. But then I wouldn't have the pleasure of sitting with you on a full journey, right, would right, I? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so if anyone's listening right now, please, please try to understand that I am not boasting here. Um, I don't want this to come across in any way that says that. Oh, look at you! You're, you know, da 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 da. Look what you can do. What I did was horrific. So, I went into the bush. I, I took my mate's shotgun. It was a pumpy. I just grabbed the bag, I had a whole bunch of shelves in it and um, I walked off into the bush, uh, in a, it was like a little satellite suburb of Darwin, uh, Palmerston and I lived virtually two streets from the bush so it wasn't like I was wandering through the suburbs with a shotgun and all the rest of it, I just quickly darted through the streets and got down into the bush and I thought if I walked far enough uh, down towards Channel Island that um, somehow I, I, I could do what I could do and my girlfriend and my friends at the time wouldn't find me because I didn't want them to see that. Yep. And I didn't, I knew it wasn't going to be pretty. So, and I was really, really drunk as well. I, I'd consumed a massive amount of alcohol that afternoon. I got, even got kicked out of the pub that night for being too drunk, out of the prep. And, um, yeah, so I, I'm heading down into the bush. I thought I found a nice spot where I could just sit down and, and do what I had to do. 
But again, that conflict with inside me, deep down in me, I didn't actually want to die. I was just hurting and I didn't know how to deal with that. So I had a couple of cracks at it and I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. It's not pissing out of me, no. I'm crying. I'm like so frustrated that I can't do this. And I thought, I had this thought that if I just fire a couple of shots in the air, um, maybe I might attract the attention of the police. The police will come down. I'll stand up and just fire a couple of shots in the air and, and they'll just take me out. I can't do it myself, so I'll just get the coppers to do it for me. Yep. And in my mind at the time, I knew that was absolutely wrong, but I felt it was my only option. So that's exactly what I did. I pretty much just, where I was sitting on the ground, I started shooting in the air, and um, and then I sat down and I just waited. Um, so as it turned out... Um, what I'd actually done is I, I thought I'd walked in like down into the bush, but I hadn't actually done that. What I'd done is kind of walked in a bit of a circle and uh, there were some houses maybe 100 metres away from me and there was a road there. So um, from where I was sitting to the road, I'm not quite sure because it was dark. This is like midnight, um, but it's got to be more than 50 metres. Uh, that's all I really remember. Um, and I'm sitting in the bush and um, one person out of everyone knew where I was but no one else could see me so um, when yep. the police rocked up I didn't even know they'd rocked up because I didn't hear them I was just sitting in the bush lost lost in my own mind and then I heard some noises or something but whatever it was made me look up and then I could see these lights in the distance maybe 50, 100 metres away from where it was and I saw the outline of what I thought at the time was this, a tactical response group member. And I thought, sorry, mate, but you're the one. And I stood up and, and, and I fired maybe five shots. Um, I couldn't tell you what sort of rounds they were. They were like solid uh, shotgun rounds and SG rounds. And I tried to put a couple around him and I tried to put a couple directly in front of him. So... That absolute fucking stupidity led to there was uh, two people standing behind a fence uh, behind that particular uh, policeman and one of my shots was an SG round so it had nine pellets in it but by the time it reached them the spread on that shot was like a metre wide yeah. so I've hit two people standing behind a fence that I didn't even know was there that's how stupid and idiotic I was being. I wasn't even mm. observing what was happening. And one of those uh, was a female police officer and one of them was a civilian. He was the guy trying to point out where I was. Wow. Um, and the, the actual police officer that I was trying to wind up to, 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 to put me down, he actually received one pellet in the arm. I'm not sure how because I never directly aimed at him. Yep. But... So my shots went past him. They went into the houses behind what, where he was standing and they went into the ground around him. And I stood there and waited for as long as I could and, and, and sure enough, he opened up fire. I don't know how many shots he fired at me and I tried to stay in the moment and waiting for him to hit me, waiting for him to hit me. But he couldn't hit me and, and I got scared and I, I took off. So that left me with, uh, with no real other, other, other options. I, I took off into the bush 
what I did is I went to a building site that I was actually working on at the time. They were building a large shopping centre in Palmerston and I knew that if I just tracked myself all the way through the bush back up to the top of the suburb that the, this particular um, building site was... Um, there was a road that separated the bush and the building site. So all I had to do was cross that one little road and I was in the building site. And so I hid in there for a while and, and then I realised that I wasn't far from the police station. Um, and I thought, I heard some screams from what I'd done. I knew I'd hurt some people and I, I didn't know whether I'd killed someone or not. And I'm like... I really didn't know what to do, but I thought if I just go to where the police cars are at the front of this police station, because the actual police station was inside a building. Yep. You, you can't just see it from the outside. You've got to go inside a building and then through a whole series of doors to actually even get into it. So there was no way I was walking into the police station with a fucking shotgun. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yep. That just wasn't an option. Um, so and you're 23? 23. 23, yeah. John. Yep. So I thought if I stood outside and blew the lights off the cars because there was a whole heap of cars out the front, police cars. I thought, I'll just stand there and I'll blow the lights off and I'll put a couple of shots into the police cars. I'll let them all know where I am and then I'll just run off into the clearing <laughs> and I'll wait for them. So I pretty much did exactly that. Yeah. And when I got to the side of the road, um, I laid down on a piece of grass and um, it was just an open block with grass on it. I think there was a McDonald's on the corner, there's bush on the other side of the road, complete bush, no houses, no businesses, no nothing for the next 20 kilometres uh, in towards Darwin. And um, so I just sat there on the grass and I waited for the tactical response group to roll up. And I was facing the actual, like in the direction of the police station and I thought that's what they, the direction they would come from. But unbeknown to me, this, this, this troop carrier, four-wheel drive, pulls up behind me not even five, ten metres away from me, and outbounds four tactical response group uh, members. Yeah. And they're fully rocking. They're ready to roll. Um, and as I turned around, I, I saw the one that was heading directly for me. So unknowingly, they'd ambushed me, and I'd also unknowingly ambushed them. Yeah. So we're just in a stalemate. And I'm like, well, you guys, this is it, guys. I'm sorry, but this is it. I'm going to force you to kill me. And that's that was my decision. So um, I fired the first shot. Uh, I hit a guy by the name of Mark. I hit him in the vest. Uh, he's got like a buckle on his vest. And it tore down into his um, trapeze and his neck. And it actually ripped out like the side of his neck. Um, but wow. this, this guy had a lot of training. This guy was full on and he dropped straight into the like the military uh, prone firing position and he emptied his entire weapon into me. So that was an MP5 Heckler and Koch and that was 19 rounds. And he actually hit me. Um, and then the guy that was behind him fell on top of him like to like not fall but like to get into position and he emptied his weapon into me as well. Another 19 rounds. All of them missed except for one. And then there's two other guys, one to my hard uh, left and one to my hard right. One's the siege and sergeant of the tactical response group and, an, and another guy, Shane. Um, they're both, like, they're, they're lining me up in a, like a crossfire type thing and then we've got these two guys in front of me that are just emptying their weapons into me. 
and somehow I turned and I shot Shane. So I fired five shots and I think they must have fired, well, I don't know, but they emptied their weapons and then they went for their sidearms. So when I shot Shane, um, he kind of, I saw him jump up in the air in, in reaction to the shot and he, he landed really heavily on the ground. But the housing around his magazine, uh, it, it fractured, it broke. So his gun didn't work anymore. But he had the drop on me. He had me cold. And, and so he reached for his sidearm and he emptied that into me, but he couldn't get a direct shot on me. So he's bouncing rounds off the road and pinging them into me. And then you got this senior sergeant up this end. I don't know whether he uh, fired his weapon or not, but he had, the, he had me from the right and these guys from the front. And somehow, uh, when I got shot, I dropped my weapon. Um, I went down to pick it up and I turned around because I actually thought someone had hit me from behind. I didn't know I'd been shot. I just, I just felt my arm go so heavy and, and I couldn't actually use it to fire any more shots. Yeah. But I got two more shots off. So there was five shots I fired. And then um, I dropped to my knees and, and I just rolled to the side and I landed in this ditch and it turned out that this ditch was actually a tunnel and it went under the, under the road. So I just fucking ramboed it out of there. I just took off. Yep. Whether, whether, whether it's fear, the whole lot's going on inside me, I'm going into shock. And I ran through this tunnel and I just sprinted into the bush um, behind these police officers. They're still firing at me over there. They still think that I'm there and they're waiting for me to... I don't know, but I'm, I'm out of there. And I ran into the bush maybe 20 metres, 30 metres, and I just I threw the gun into the bush uh, in disgust, and I was just like, what the fuck are you doing? Mm. And, and, and I've got all these thoughts. I'm, 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 I'm full of fear. I'm full of anger. I'm bleeding heavily. I'm going into shock. And then I grabbed the gun and I just rammed it into a... Um, like a crevice in the tree and I sat down beside the tree and I just I thought this is it maybe I'm just going to bleed out here and, and, and it's all said and done mm. and I waited I waited I waited and I like I was losing a lot of blood but it wasn't enough to die mm. um, and then I could hear all these noises around me and it was the tactical response group they were moving up on me and um for the first time in that night, I actually made the first responsible decision I ever made and I just yelled out, Oi! And um, a police officer yelled back to me, Hey, hey! I'm like, I'm over here. And they're like, we need you to come out. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I go, I have been shot. He goes, uh, we need you to come out with both your hands held high. I mm. go, that's not going to happen. I go, half of my body doesn't want to work. Um, he goes, you better come out with your hands out high or we're going to put you down. And uh, stuff like, I can't remember exactly what got mm. said, but it was words to those effects. Yeah, yeah. He was giving me really, really definitive instructions. And um, he was also saying words to the effect of, look, no one's died yet. You're going to be okay. Yeah, right. Um, um, you're going to sort this out one day. Just surrender, put an end to this mess. Yeah, and, and for the first time, I was communicating with another human being, and that's well, powerful, D. Wow. 
I don't remember the exact how it all panned out and what got said. I just remember the effect of what got said. And I was like, I'm going to prison for a long, long time. I'm okay with that, but maybe one day, I don't know from what this guy says, maybe I can turn it around. So, yeah. Um, wow. A year or so later, thankfully, no one passed away that night. Um, but I found myself in front of the Supreme Court at Darwin and um, I had a psychologist saying that he's not mad, he's not bad, he's just really mixed up, he, he's sad. This kid doesn't know how to talk about himself. He doesn't know how to unload this trauma. He's just fucking hurting. And, and the justice at the time heard that. Um, the entire court was packed full of police officers in full uniform. The media was there. There was no standing. There was just standing room at the back. The media had it all. Yep. Uh, every seat was taken. And, um, yeah, I got a chance to apologise. I got a chance to stand up in the dock and just say, look, I'm really sorry for what I did. Wow. And, and no matter what I do from this day forward, I'm going to try and turn it around. Mm. And mm. I spoke to each police officer that I, that I hurt. And, and I just, I knew they couldn't forgive me. I'm not asking for, for forgiveness. That's not what that was about. It was just about me saying that, you know, I am going to use this for momentum for change. Mm. I am going to try and do this. And, and somehow maybe one day it might turn out. Wow. Wow. Beautiful. Jesus. Wow. What's yeah. that like to, to say that story, Dick? Um, there's a lot of shame. There is. Uh, and the, the, this 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 decision has cost me so much, and and cost other people so much. Um, yeah, and and and, and because of it, um, it, it, it's seen me spend nearly twenty years uh, incarcerated. Because I, I do have a head sentence of life, natural life, so I'm a, I'm actually a prisoner serving this sentence in the community for the remainder of my life, and if I get it wrong, or the people I work with get it wrong, because this is the risk. I work with people that haven't quite sorted their lives out yet, so they could potentially put me back in prison. My own decisions could potentially put me back in prison, but it's worth it because that's what that's that's what the work dictates. It is absolutely wholeheartedly one hundred percent worth it. It's a risk worth taking. Um, but yeah, wow, the most compelling story I've I've heard, mate. Um, so there's there's a few things I want to ask. So you did you got you you got twelve. Yeah, 12 on the bottom and a life head sentence. Yeah, and at what point did you qualify yourself towards the, the end of that sentence? Uh, qualify myself in... Um, um, Bachelor of uh, uh, Criminal Justice. Yeah, Criminology yeah. and so Yoga that was, and Meditation. That was, I got my sentence... Well, this all happened uh, in June of 96. And then yeah. by about 2004... I was heavily involved in a martial arts program. Um, we were learning things like yoga, martial arts, boxing, Pilates, uh, Reiki, all this kind of stuff to heal ourselves. Um, uh, 
and, and at the same time, um, my role in the prison was actually to facilitate these programs. Um, yeah. That was that was my job as a prisoner. So a lot of these programs I ran, um, and at the same time, yeah, I was trying to achieve a Bachelor of Arts in Criminology and Criminal Justice, which I did become successful in. Incredible. So the big thing is, what was the turning point? Because I know you did one more um, smaller sentence yeah. after that. Yeah. Five years. Yeah. Um, what was the turning point, Dion? The turning point for me was the birth of my first daughter. Mm. Um, that's when it got real. Yeah. And I knew, and it fucking kills me, but I knew I didn't have what it takes to be a father. I just knew. Yeah. And uh, that's why one of my favourite songs is from Creed, you know, with arms wide open. Mm. Because he talks about, you know, I'm going to show you everything. I'm going to show you this world. I'm going to be the man you need me to be. But I knew I couldn't be that. I was still in prison. I still had like uh, four years to go. I'd conceived a child through a visit program, you know, through my through through um, my privileges and stuff, and I had to I had to put my head down and try and sort this shit out. But through that whole time, here I was helping other prisoners to sort out their lives, and that was that prevented me from actually working on myself. Okay, yeah. that became my shield. If I was helping others, I was okay. I didn't have to look at myself. And then, um, yeah. So it, it took until I ended up going back to prison. Um, because as soon as I came home, I realised that I didn't have the skills to live in society, and I started to slip back into drug use. Yep. Uh, I started using alcohol as a as a way to cope with like keeping a lid on my emotions. Um, and three years later, I found myself back in custody. Um, it, it was, I was charged with being in possession of an unlicensed firearm, and I was uh, yeah so. And, and even in that time, I still didn't get it right. I tried to do the work, but I became really frustrated because there was a whole series of law changes in Victoria around people on parole. So, because I not because of the law change, I actually had to spend another couple of years in prison. It wasn't because I'd actually committed further offences. It was because of a change in law, and I became really frustrated and angry about that. And my cup was so full when I came home. Nine months later, I was already using um, a little bit of drugs here and there to, to, to keep a lid on that frustration, and I missed my curfew by an hour and a half. So my parole was cancelled on the spot, and, and, and I was back in custody. And that's that's when I knew something had to change. Yeah. So I asked corrections if they could send me to Marganite. I'd heard about this program called the Intensive Drug and Alcohol Program, and I heard about this lady that was just phenomenal, and uh, Sangeeta Mishra. So, um, Corrections actually granted me permission to do that, went down there, introduced myself to Sangeeta. I said, I really want to get involved in your program. I go, I've got to sort my shit out, otherwise my daughters, you know, my partner at the time, all that, it's, I'm losing it all because I'm so mixed up. And she goes, all right. So I volunteered for her program three times and um, I got to sit in a room 
where at exactly 9am the door closed. If you were one minute late, you couldn't get in the door. You weren't allowed drink bottles, there were no toilet breaks, there were no lollies in your pocket, there was no nothing. You were there to work on yourself and that was, that was the boundary. If you broke the boundaries, you're out the group. And you had to volunteer. You had to be there of your own accord. So we were required to write these small SI, essays on parts of our lives that we wanted to heal. And what we would do, we'd ask, we'd ask ourselves this, this question of, when did you first notice that this behaviour was becoming a problem? And then like you, you would pick a particular behaviour, whether it was, for me, like I did something like, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 different topics on areas of my life that I wanted to heal. And then, um, and then I'd write a small essay and all these pennies would drop. I'm doing this to myself. I created this behavior. I set this in motion. I could have turned off here and I chose not to. And I kept it going. Self-awareness. Yeah. Yeah. You were talking about that earlier, Dan. Yeah. And then we would deliver these essays to the group. So, you know, it was up to five, six, eight other men would sit in the group while you bawled your eyes out, while you laughed, while you cheered, and you'd deliver your essay. And then they would pick you apart in the process. Because you can't bullshit a bullshitter. <laughs> Le- leading teams type thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So if there was any bullshit in your story, it would very quickly get unearthed and, and you'd have to face that in front of a group of uh, uh, men. And you could either justify it or you couldn't, you know. So one way or another, Sangeeta brought us all together and we all healed. That was our space for nine months. And that was, that, that was the momentum for change was my daughter. The momentum for change was me getting sentenced to life and apologising for those, to those police officers and, and the one civilian that got hurt that night. But it didn't actually occur until I met Sangeeta when all that lived experience came together and instead of focusing on others, I actually put myself first. Wow, mate. Well done. Well, throw to one song, mate. Yep. Well done, mate. Thanks for sharing. Well done. Thanks, man. Well done, Dave. Fantastic. Very powerful, mate. Beautiful, man. If you're down Caraway, just call Mitchell Tall. Or in Patterson Lakes, just call Mitchell Tall. Anywhere Bayside, just call Mitchell Tall. Buy a summer house. Just call Mitchell Tall. Mitchell Tall. Real estate. Oh, yeah, Mitchell. little real estate. We want more. <laughs> <laughs> We've done it. One take. Hi, I'm Freddie from Freddie's Kitchen. Let's get behind Radio Karam. Go, Karam. Okay, we're back. Um, compelling is the word. Um, so you turned it around. This is the thing for me that um, I found the most inspiring. D is um, you didn't make excuses. You made it happen. That's you got my respect, absolute love, and ad- admiration, respect. Thanks, brother. And that's likewise too, because your, your your story is nothing short of amazing mm. and you've you, all three men in this room 
we can easily pay that compliment to each other, can't we? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It's great to have somebody from another organisation, a like-minded organisation. And you are on the other side of town. It's great to meet you. Yeah, yeah let's, let's, let's talk a bit about where you're working now. Yeah. And what's going on. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about it. So the Power in You, um, it's just an absolutely amazing uh, program. Straight up there with hard cuddles. Like it's everyone in and, in and associated with hard cuddles or the Power in You mm-hmm. is the real deal. There's, there's, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, so the Power in You was brought about... Uh, through it was off the back of, of, of struggle so our fa- our founder Kane Nuttall um, uh, he he went through a, a period of addiction that like it was it was it was around nine years or something like that and um, so ice was the was the main was the main chemical there uh, there were some other substances and stuff like that but the reason why he chose those substances was because uh, he had some self-esteem issues. Um, he, he had a massive breakout of acne when he was young, and that really that really tore him down as a human being. And um, there were some other issues there and stuff that was happening. And so he chose. He thought that by making the choice to choose chemicals to make himself feel better. At the time, yeah, sure, that's a great decision, and you got to do whatever you got to do to get you through. But on reflection, we know differently, don't we, fellas? Yeah. And um, so, through the back of his own struggle, um, the power in you was created, and um, so the power in you is an open-ended uh, program where we've got three streams um, of, of of referral. So we we we, we get referred people through the NDIS we get uh, referred people from the Department of Justice and we've also got self-referral um, where friends mums dads or individuals bring themselves into the into the center and and the great thing about the power in you is this the day you show up that's when your support begins there's mm. no waiting periods hmm. bang as soon as you walk in the door bang you're on yep uh, and you're there voluntary we don't accept people on orders and all this kind of stuff. They may be on orders, but they have no order to attend our centre. They come voluntary. Yeah. And then um, the, 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 I guess the purpose of, of our program is to assist people, whether it be addiction, uh, whether it be mental health, whether it be just a little bit of general support to get down to the supermarket yeah. and, and stuff like that, to go out and... I don't know, maybe go bowling, go fishing, participate in an art group, do some boxing, do some self-defence, go for a walk along the river, just get in the bus and go down the coast and find a bakery and <laughs> smash some pies and a coffee, you know, all the good stuff that we love to That's do. That's right. Yeah. That's right, mate. And, and this is how we demonstrate recovery. We, we, we give people positive choices, um, positive activities, and our role as support workers whether it's back a house, whether it's right up at the coalface, is just to encourage people to just keep making better choices each yeah. and every day. Enough. And then through that, through that uh, uh, unity, we create community. <laughs> we give people a safe space to explore their challenges, to maybe release a little bit of their trauma and to start talking about their emotions. Yeah. And, and our team is nothing short of amazing. Mm. Um, 
from Kane all the way down. We've got a forensic psychologist. We've got a justice coordinator. We've got uh, two ladies that uh, they're nothing short of amazing. They head up our women's only groups and they also participate with our mixed groups as well. Mm. But um, that's one of, the, one, of, one of the wonderful things that we do offer is a women's only space where women can come together and form relationships around trust and stuff like that and start their own version of healing without the presence of men. You know, there's, yeah. and wow. um, um, I, I guess a part of this whole framework is, yeah, we want community and it's through the com- that joint community that we all explore ourselves. Um, and, and there's no judgment. Yeah. There's no judgment. Beautiful. I see that um, the Power, Power of You project, you got uh, your T-shirt, it says, I am, I am enough. I am enough. So you might have, do you have a lot of clients that think they're, when they do turn up to your organisation, that obviously have um, self-worth issues or... Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because when you're coming off the back of addiction or trauma or whether you're just facing challenges through the NDIS or you've had contact with the justice system, you may not be feeling the best about yourself. Mm. You know, life's hard. Yeah. And and, and when you see someone, I guess, when they're wearing a T-shirt saying, yeah, I am enough, sometimes I have to look at it and remind myself. Yeah, I love that T-shirt. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Amazing. It's, It's a beautiful thing. But you know what I like? Beautiful. Here's thing. you, Jimmy. You're a man mountain. You're a gentle giant. <laughs> and you've got cuddles written on your t You know what? I, I walk into like, um, shops and then they go, oh, wow. Yeah, I'll, I'll grab a cuddle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love yeah. that. <laughs> this is a bit of a hit to so t- <laughs> so tell me, Tell me about fatherhood. Are you a good dad? Now? I try to be. I really do. Um, I'm struggling with my oldest daughter at the moment. Yep. She, she's, she's just gone on 17 and it's fucking wrecking me. Um, yeah. Mm. Because I haven't been there for her. I put mates, I put crime, I put drugs, I put bad choices ahead of her. Yeah. And, 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 and that's like, you know, that song with arms wide open. It's like that's the version of the the dad I want to be, yeah. And I'm still trying to get there, yeah. But I've caused a lot of harm in the process, yeah. So now I have to sit and be patient and wait for my daughter to to, to deal with that, yep. And and but it doesn't stop me from being a ripper dad to my youngest daughter, yeah. And um, you know, we get to go out on bush walks. We you know we went to the movies last week. Every chance I get, if I can get up to Melbourne and, and visit my daughters, and they want they want me up there for the day, hey, I'm there. I'm straight in the car and I'm I'm smashing it up the freeway. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful, mate. Um, but to answer your question honestly, I'm a work in progress, mate. I'm a work. Are we all? We all are. <laughs> we all are. We all. Goodness me. Um, what about love, mate? Love. Mm. Don't you just love love? Oh yeah, when it when it's going well, yeah. When it's going well. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it can be a train wreck. <laughs> Otherwise, you're sleeping on the couch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'd be interested to hear what you guys hear on this. For, like for me, quickly, I can love another human being. I, it's not a challenge for me anymore to allow others to love me. That's the tricky part for me. I'd love to hear what you guys have got to say on this. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm in the market, zero four. I'll be married to, to my wife now. Oh, I've been with my wife now nearly 30 years next year. Mm. 30 years. Three so. bricks. Wow. Yeah, three bricks. You've so. done more time than I have, bro. <laughs> 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 but but um, I suppose, you know, we, we work on it all the time. Yeah. You know, it's a work in progress. It's it's always, you know, uh, we like to, we, we have our own sort of sayings like creating memories, not only for ourselves, but for our children. So, mm. You know, um, that's, yeah, yeah. And, and it's always working. We're always working towards it. Yeah. Like I suppose if you stop working towards it, that's when, well, my perspective is if you stop working towards it, that's when things will start to go a bit pear-shaped maybe. Um, yeah. But we're always working to try and, you know, head out, you know, talk, chat. She's like my best best mate, so, you know, yeah, we yeah, all yeah. share everything. So. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, no, you know, all your secrets, got to let it all out. Mm. No secrets, huh? No, that's right. You can't hold on because she, she's good at, you know, just getting them out. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like how much money have you got in your bag? I've got none. I've got none in there. And then she goes, okay, I've got this 50 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, Simi, behave so you can go camping, mate. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. got to get permission to get out camping. That's it. That's right. Um, yeah, that's interesting, mate. I was just reflecting. Um, I think um, come living, spending a lot of time in that world, the criminal world, women were very much objects mm. or they were something, um, they were an accessory. So um, it was pointed out by my wife like a year into our marriage that um, she didn't feel like I respected women. Like wow. she said, that you respect your mum and your sister. Yeah. But I'm not sure you respect women. And I didn't like hearing that because the ego was still very much raging and in control at that time. And um, she was right. She was right. And it's, I'm one of those guys that has heaps and heaps of friends and people that I know. But that is, I only let a really, really tight group of people in. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think she was probably the first person outside of my family to burrow in there. Like, she, was, she wasn't taking no she got for through. it. She broke it. She shattered the... Don't she just love that oh, about someone? It's so confronting. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then turned the mirror back on myself rather than pointing and telling everyone else. It was How like did that jo- make you feel? Shocking. Shocking. I wasn't perfect. Ooh. Yeah, I wasn't perfect. Um, yeah, and that's still a work in progress. But yeah, she broke through and probably allowed me to start trusting, my, you know, trusting, being able to trust to let pe- more people in. Mm. And that was probably really started about five years ago, I think. Wow. Yeah. And again, a work in progress. Yeah. Are you finding it easier? Let it's, people in? It's, it's much easier. Yeah. It's yeah. much easier. You don't have to. You can just be yourself. Yeah. You know you don't. You don't have to live up to a reputation, or you don't have to be what people think you should be, or mm. this uh, over-the-top glamorized version of yourself. Mm. It's just. It's just uh, simple. It takes a lot of energy to, to to maintain that ego, doesn't it? It's, a, it's similar to running an addiction. It's just exhausting. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I reckon we've done all right, gents, today. Yeah, yeah, man. Oh, 
I loved it. Yeah. Blown away. I, yeah, and thanks thank, for sharing, mate. Yeah. Excellent. Oh, thank yeah. you for the opportunity. It's really inspirational. You, know, you must be really connecting with a lot of people this, from homeless to people who have been in jail, stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, my life does allow me to, to connect with some people and, and, and it also prevents me from connecting with others. Yep. You know, but where I can make a change and where I can be available, that's where I'm at. Yeah, and you you got to use what you got to your best of your ability, and, and as, as as we keep saying, we're works in progress, aren't we, fellas? Yeah, we're all we're all yeah. agents of change, and it's yeah. glad to meet another one. Yeah. What, what's your one before we go? What's the one motto or saying that you've lived your life by that's always sort of rung true? Have you got a? I do have one, and it comes from boxing. Believe it or not. Yep. Um, so for me everything begins with a push in boxing i'm yet to find a move a defense a a twist a punch a turn a twist that doesn't begin with a push i've never found one and i've never had a student or a teacher point one out to me and i think that metaphor can be used in life Um, sometimes in boxing you've got to push really really hard and in other times you've got to back off and and in life it's no different if you're not willing to get out of bed in the morning, if you're not willing to get out there and start talking about your trauma and how that made you feel, you know, you've got to be willing to push yourself to do that stuff. Yeah. Otherwise, you, you're just not going to get well. Mm. A- and you've got to be willing to admit sometimes you've got to push a little bit harder than other times and other times you've got to back right off and mm. just be gentle, gentle, gentle. Beautiful. Finding beautiful. that balance. Life begins with a push. Life begins with a push. What an amazing takeaway. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. I'll never forget the first one we've done. I guess it's, um, yeah, incredible, mate. Thank you so much, and I'm looking forward to spending a hell of a lot more time with you, mate. Same, Jamie. Same. Sammy, Danny, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. No worries. That's it for today, the Hard Cuddle Show. Thank you. Bye. (laughs)